Well, friends, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please join me now by turning to the book of Philippians, chapter 1, and this morning we're studying verses 18 to 30. Philippians 1, 18 to 30, and our message this morning is going to be called, To Live as Christ and Die as Gain. Well, yesterday, along with some of you who are present today, I attended the funeral of a local ministry leader, and I was reminded of how death has a way of clarifying life. One thing I've noticed through the years is that when someone dies, you often discover what they lived for. You quickly find out in someone's death what someone was most passionate about. So friends, in thinking about ourselves, let me ask you a reflective question. If you were to die today, what would be said at your funeral? What would you be remembered for? Well, the good news this morning is that we don't have to wait until death to find the answer to that question. With God's help... We can take a serious look at our hearts this morning and answer that question and settle this matter. This morning's text makes direct contact with this very issue, with this very question. And it demands an answer. This text demands an answer by asking this question. How will you live Since Christ died and rose. How will you live since Christ died and rose? The Apostle Paul is not wasting words. In this text, he's getting straight to the point. And I think that that's probably to be expected because when a man is sitting in prison, as Paul was in writing this letter unaware as to whether or not he would ever see freedom again, it creates a sense of urgency in a person, a way of of sort of cutting through the chaff. So Christian, Paul asked, how will you live since Christ died and rose again from the dead? The question implies that Christ's death should have an obvious effect on our life. And in particular, in this text, he's going to point to three ways that it should have an effect. And these three ways will serve as our three points this morning. But first, let's turn our attention to what is undoubtedly the best part of this morning's message, and that is the reading of God's Word. Philippians 1, starting in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through the help of your prayers and the help of the, Holy, and the, help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, 
To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you, have, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. And now hear that I still have. Let's go to the Lord quickly and ask for his help as we study his word. Lord, we love you. We love your word. And we readily admit this morning, quickly admit, that we need your help, Lord. We need your help to hear your word, to understand your word, to apply your word, to believe your word. So God, please give us that grace. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our first point this morning is his death means my joy in living. Verses 18 to 20. Last year, Google records that over 300,000 times someone asked the question, where can I find happiness? Additionally, a researcher reveals that in 2017 alone, a total of 1,964 books were published on happiness. That's startling. But, Christian friend, you and I have no need to look anywhere else but this divinely inspired book this morning. The book of Philippians has been coined by some as the happiest book in the Bible. I think that that is a fair statement to make of this book, considering that the word joy or the word rejoice is used 16 different times throughout this short letter. Unlike the superficial material that is widely recommended in our culture and in our context, Paul's joy is much deeper. It's a joy that is firmly fixed outside of himself and in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the good news is that Paul's experience of joy is not the exception In the Christian life, it is expected to be the norm. Paul's writing this letter of Philippians to 
ordinary people just like you and just like me. People who were from different economic backgrounds, different income levels, different cultural statuses. And he's addressing different people, but he's maintaining the exact same expectation throughout the entire letter. The gospel should affect your joy. Now, we know that at least three people who were in this church in Philippi. We know one was Lydia from our reading in the book of Acts. And Lydia, we might say, she represents those who were wealthy and elite in society. We know that there was a jailer and his entire family. We could say that he represents the blue-collar working middle class. And we could suspect that there might be the slave girl who was possessed by the demon that, that, that Paul exercised out of her. Let's just say that she represents the lower class. But Paul's not writing individual letters to each one of these people. No, the message is the same for every Christian, regardless of income, regardless of social status, regardless of education. The expectation is the same. Jesus' death and his resurrection should affect your joy. And now he models this belief for the church. And then he models this belief for us. While in prison, we were taught last week through this letter that certain preachers in Rome are preaching Christ out of jealousy to upset Paul, to disturb him. And there is no doubt that his heart is burdened with sorrow. Yet he launches into this section, starting in verse, t- verse 18, and says, Yes, I will rejoice. Two times in this verse alone, it's the only time in any of Paul's writings that he doubles down on something. Two times in this verse alone, he resolves to rejoice. The first reason is because Christ is proclaimed. I rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. Regardless of motives, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And the second reason that he rejoices is because he says, I know, writing to the church in Philippi, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, what does Paul mean in this statement? What does he mean in this sentence? In saying deliverance, does Paul mean that he has a hope or he has an expectation that he's going to be rescued from prison? Well, actually, no. Scholars almost unanimously agree that this word in the original actually might be better translated as salvation instead of deliverance. Salvation, and therefore is referring to life after death. And what is a major factor contributing to our perseverance in the faith? Well, this is fascinating in faith building, what Paul teaches us in this next section. Paul says, it is through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. 
He's persevering in prison. And he is thanking, thanking them. He's acknowledging that his perseverance in the faith has some correlation, I think a significant correlation is what he's writing here, to this church's prayers. In other words, Paul's reminding these Christians of their job to pray. He's saying that, he's saying that God is answering their prayers by providing Strength through the Holy Spirit. Friends, I thought that was stunning when I came across this. I thought that was striking. What this means is that our individual experience of perseverance and joy in the faith is related to the faithfulness of other Christians to pray for us. As Paul sits in prison, he he knows that he's not alone. He acknowledges that he's not alone. The church in Philippi, as Paul sees it, is partnering with him and his perseverance by prayer. As strong as Paul is in the faith, I would say that he's weak and wise enough to know the strength he needs to endure persecution with joy comes from God alone. And God imparts that strength through the Spirit in response to the prayer of these Christians. And that is stunning. So in light of this, let me ask you a question. Do you have anyone praying for you on a regular basis? Have you ever asked someone to partner with you in prayer? Why is this so important? Well, because I think Paul is teaching. That the prayers of Christians have a relationship to the Spirit's supply of strength so that we might persevere in the Christian life with joy. And the Spirit, Paul goes on to say, is the one who is preserving Paul's faith. This is how he says it. He says, this will turn out for my deliverance or for my salvation as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. As Paul's faith and confidence are pressed under the weight of persecution, He is asserting that through this church's partnership in prayer, the Holy Spirit is imparting strength to him so that he won't compromise on his convictions. This church is holding him up like Moses' arms 
in the Old Testament. They're holding him up in persecution by their prayers. They think miles away that they have nothing to contribute to Paul. They're not wealthy. They're they're not influential. But Paul's saying, no, you don't even know how influential you are. Your prayers are sustaining me. God is hearing your prayers and he's supplying strength through the Holy Spirit so that I would persevere under persecution with joy. Essentially, he's saying, you see this joy I have? It's not because I was born just joyful and happy. It's because you're praying for me. And as you're praying for me, God is, God is answering those prayers and supplying me with the strength of the Spirit. So thank you for praying for me. Don't lose heart in praying for me. Paul's goal in all of this is for Christ to be honored. Friends, if Paul were having open heart surgery, the physician would find after cracking open his chest that his heart beats to this one rhythm. The honor of Jesus Christ. He's crying out to God in the midst of persecution, in the midst of pressing. He's crying out to God. Don't let me shame the the name of Jesus. Friends, this should be the cry. Of every genuine Christian's heart. Is that the cry of your heart? Whether you are in a season of prosperity or a season of trial, is this your heart's cry? God, whatever happens, whatever happens. Listen, I think it's stunning. Paul's, the content of Paul's prayers while in prison, first century prison. I imagine no lights, no candlelight, dark, gloomy, water stagnating, not well fed, malnourished, mistreated, mocked. And the content of Paul's prayers aren't, Lord, let me out of here. The content of his prayers is, don't let me shame the name of Christ. Philippi, you want to pray for me? Here's how I want you to pray for me. If you're praying for me, that God would open the prison doors, thank you, please keep praying that. But realign those prayers. Put at the top of those prayers that no matter what, that I would not shame his name. That I wouldn't back off on these convictions. That I, would, that I would persevere to the end. This should be the cry of every genuine Christian's heart. Is it your heart's cry? That leads to our second point this morning. His death 
means my joy in dying. Verses 21 to 26. Friend, if you were on death row, what would be your last words? In 2018, a researcher found that the word love was the most common word in death row last statements. In an analysis of 140 Texas inmates, the word love was used 323 times. In other words, death has a way of clarifying what should be most important in our lives. As Paul was sitting on death row in Rome, unaware as to whether or not he was going to be getting out of prison, what were his words? Well, unlike many in our context who are confessing regrets, Paul is seen doubling down with his confession. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. Verse 21. As I read this text, I got hung up on three words that might surprise you. For to me. For to me. To live is Christ. For to me, Paul says, to live is Christ. And die is gain. Well, this confession is the obvious conclusion at the end of Paul's life, right? We know Paul's life, of course. We're saying, well, duh, Paul, we know that's your confession. We've seen the way you lived your life. When you consider his life from conversion all the way up to the point of death, one can't help conclude that for Paul to live was for Christ. And that he saw dying as gain. But what we need to consider and seriously consider this morning is this question. Is that true of you? Is that true of us? Is that true of me? Now what does to live for Christ mean? It sounds really exciting. And it sounds like the great conclusion of the Christian's life. But what in the world does it mean? Well, for Paul, he goes on to say in verse 22 what he meant by it. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. So in other words, if God spares Paul's life, (laughs) he has no intentions of letting off the gas and sort of cooling down for a little while. But he's determined. Paul's determined to press on in fruitful labor for Christ. So in other words, if he gets out of prison, he has every intention. Moments after the door unlocks and he's out, he has every intention to proclaim Christ everyone, to everywhere, to everyone, and to obey Christ himself every day. Now, friend, what does living for Christ look like for you? Well, for those who are married, we know that it looks like sacrificially laying down your life for your spouse. 
for those who are still living in mom and dad's house, this is what it looks like. It looks like honoring your mom and your dad. If you're in the workplace, it looks like working as unto the Lord with integrity and with diligence. If you're single, it looks like patiently waiting for God's provision for a spouse while making use of the time for the advancement of the gospel. And for every Christian, it looks like proclaiming Christ. Proclaiming Christ to everybody that you know. But that's not all of Paul's confession. He concludes by saying, to die is gain. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, verse 23, he goes on to give us clarity on what he means. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. (laughs) That's what he means. Paul loves Jesus. Paul loves Christ. Paul's not a fatalist, and he's not writing a death wish. He's not wishing that he would die. Paul simply knows that while he was saved in this world, he was saved for that world. His heart has a yearning to be with the one in whom it loves most. And heaven for Paul was a profound place. Paul didn't have a low view of heaven. Paul has a remarkable theology of heaven. He has a profound picture of heaven. So profound that he concludes in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9, this about heaven. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. That was what Paul pictured heaven being like. But this is what's stunning about that. Fundamentally, what brought Paul the most joy about heaven was not what it would be like, but who would be there. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. Friend, if we took a survey in most American churches and asked this question, what are you most excited about in heaven? Do you think we would hear this Pauline answer? From most of my conversations with professing Christians, people say a lot more about being reunited with loved ones. Very little, if any, about seeing Christ. And being with Christ. Paul had certainly lost loved ones throughout his lifetime. Loved ones who loved the Lord throughout his lifetime. But his highest joy in thinking about heaven was not imagining their faces. 
but it was anticipating seeing Christ. It was the, the profound anticipation of seeing the person of Jesus Christ. Paul has no idea what's going to happen in his imprisonment. But as he tells us in verse 24, that he needs to stay alive. He feels that deep in his bones. I need to stay alive to help this church to progress in their joy and in their faith. Now, friends, the Christian can have this profound confession. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is a Christian confession. But what we need to remember this morning is that that cannot be said of the non-Christian. That cannot be the non-Christian's confession. For the non-Christian, there is no gain in death. There is only loss. For the Christian, there is life after death. But for the non-Christian, there is only death upon death. So friend, if you're here with us this morning... And you're not a Christian. You've not turned from your sins and truly trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins. If that's you this morning and you feel the Spirit prompting you to do just that, then do that right now. Wherever you're sitting, wherever you hear my voice, that you would, in your heart, acknowledge your sin against God, that you deserve God's righteous wrath as a result of your sins, but that you see for the first time in your life that God has made a way for you, that he loves you, and that he sent and sacrificed his own son on the cross so that you could be entirely forgiven of all of your sins. All of your sins. All of your sins. The past, the present, the future. The ones that many know about, the ones that no one knows about. God has made the way. And it is sending Christ, his son, to die on the cross. And that's all that's required of us, friend, is to acknowledge our need and to turn and trust in Christ alone. So I urge you to do that today, friend. Put your faith in Jesus. At least to our third point this morning. His death deserves worthy living. Verses 27 to 30. In verse 27, Professor Paul turns after writing on the blackboard and makes direct eye contact with each and every one of us this morning and says in verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Isn't the gospel stunning? Listen, our only qualification to receive the gospel is to acknowledge our utter unworthiness. But then, upon receiving the gospel, God calls us to live worthy 
of the gospel. So what in the world is going on here? What does he mean? Well, Gordon Fee says this is an invitation for these Christians to live in the Roman colony of Philippi as worthy citizens of your heavenly homeland. And D.A. Carson says this, Conduct, or conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. Conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct that promotes the gospel. Friends, in light of what God has done for us in the gospel, our heart cry should be to honor him and obey him and adore him and avoid at all costs being ashamed or shaming the name of Jesus. In the gospel, God has changed everything about you. Paul says, now live like it. That's what living worthy of the gospel means. God has changed everything about you, Christian. Your status, your standing before God, your destination, your affections, your joys. He's changed everything about you. Therefore, Paul says, live like it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, Paul says it this way. You are not your own, for you were, bought with a, you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, in this section, Paul has two concerns. First is, in verse 27, for the Christian to stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, the word spirit, scholars say, is likely and correctly a reference to the Holy Spirit. So what this means is that this kind of Christian unity that Paul is calling this church to have, that Paul is referring to in this section, is only experienced through the supernatural work and working of the Holy Spirit. This is not simply a command from Paul to lay aside petty differences in the church, but rather for the church to be resolved that they must ask help from the Spirit to experience New Testament unity. The kind of unity that attracts the world. The kind of unity that Jesus was praying for. That is only born of the Spirit. Secondly, his second concern, verse 28, is for the Christian not to be frightened in anything by your opponents. Why? Well, he goes on to tell us. Because, he says, this is a clear sign. It may not appear clear, <laughs> They're wiping their eyes like, Paul, we're getting persecuted here. It doesn't seem clear. Paul says, no, this is a clear sign 
of their destruction, but of your salvation from God. Paul lived with this profound confidence that all wrongs would be made right by God in the end. And he wants the Christian, he wants this church in Philippi, and he wants us to live with that same confidence today. That all wrongs will be made right by God. How confident was Paul in God's sovereignty over all things? So confident. That he concludes this section by saying in verse 29, something striking. Church in Philippi, all Christians, it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. understand what he's saying here? God has undeservedly granted two things to these Christians and neither of them should be in question. The first thing that he has granted is that you should believe in him. Paul is making plain that salvation is a gift. Paul is making plain in this sentence That salvation itself is a gift. And the faith necessary to believe in Christ is a gift. A gift that has been granted to you. A gift that has been given to you. Secondly, we might say, okay, that's amazing. Thank you for that gift. Thank you so much for that gift. And then the Lord says, I have another gift for you. Oh, wow, really? What is that gift? Let me unwrap the bow. The the walls of the box fall down. That you should suffer for the sake of Christ. (laughs) Is this right? The last one seemed a little better. Is this right? Is there a typo in this? Is this Did you mean to write suffer? What about prosper? What about, what about no suffering? Did you, oh, that you should not suffer. That's what you meant to say. You forgot the word. No, no, no. No, God has granted two things, that you should believe in him. Faith is a gift. You believe in Christ, that's a gift. It's been given to you. And two, that you should suffer for the sake of Christ. Listen, friends, the Christian hope is not that we would be saved from suffering, but that we'd be saved through suffering. So, friend, we finally return to our question from the beginning of the message. How will you live since Christ died and rose again from the grave? How will you live since Christ died? really died and really rose again from the grave. How will you live? Isaac Watts is going to have the last words in our message this morning. He says, 
the following in the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowed mingled down. Did e'er such a love or sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a tribute far too small. Love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, and my all. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, Isaac Watts is exactly right. What you have done for us in sending and sacrificing Christ on the cross demands, <laughs> demands my all. But Lord, I wake up every morning aware of my sin. I wake up every morning thanking what a terrible sinner I am. Lord, I ask, I ask that you would please continue to give us the sustaining strength through the Spirit that we might persevere in life with joy, that we might bring you great glory through our perseverance in life, come what may, with joy, that we might bring you great glory through our perseverance in life because of our joy. That is a work of your spirit, not a work of our flesh. And so, Lord, I ask you that you would give us that strength, that enabling strength from the spirit, that we would be a people freshly filled this morning to walk out that kind of way of life. We look to you for that. We look to you alone. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.